And good morning. This is Alicia Bales live once again in the Ukiah studio here at the MCOE campus in Talmadge. Uh, this is Byline Mendocino, and Byline Mendocino is a bi-weekly local media roundtable where we focus on local journalism and local newsmakers. Today on Byline Mendocino, I am so excited. We have two guests in the first half of the show. We are going to get to meet Sonia Warich, who is the new reporter for Report for America for KZYX and the Mendocino Voice. Uh, so we're going to introduce our listeners to Sonia, who will be covering climate and environment beat for the KZYX News and the Mendocino Voice. In the second half of the show, we have sort of the, as close as we get to a a, uh, a celebrity reporter for local journalism. We have Mary, Call Mary Callahan, and you can hear me nerding out on <laughs> local journalism. Uh, we don't have celebrity local journalists, but Mary Callahan has been reporting uh, on Mendocino County for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat for, I think she said, 28 years. And she's also the climate change and environment reporter uh, for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. We see her byline on stories from everything to PG&E, fire, um, ocean stories, and, and many more. We're going to talk with Mary Callahan about her long career covering um, local and regional stories for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, which the Press Democrat itself has gone through a lot of changes recently as well. So we're going to hear from her about her reporting and about her experience working for a local regional paper uh, over the years and how things have changed. So, but first... I want to introduce our first guest. Uh, last year, KZYX teamed up with the Mendocino Voice at mendovoice.com. They're an online newspaper, of course, covering local breaking news. Um, and we together we applied for a grant from Report for America. And RFA is a program that places journalists in local newsrooms around the country with financial and professional support throughout the year of the grant. So you definitely heard Lana Cohen. She was our Report for America reporter last year. She was covering um, uh, the environment and climate beat for the KZYX News and for MendoVoice.com until she left in May to pursue uh, reporting at a local newspaper in Vermont. So we said goodbye to Lana, but then uh, we applied for, we had such a good experience that we applied for another reporter uh, from Report for America. So we are so excited to announce that we have just hired our second Report for America reporter, uh, and we're going to introduce her to you this morning. Sonia Warich is the new Report for America reporter for KZYX and the Mendocino Voice. She comes to us most recently from a paper in North Carolina where she was a reporter covering the life sciences industry. And before that, she was a staff writer at the Eureka Times Standard, a little closer to home. She's worked at papers large and small, covering all kinds of beats from entertainment to education. Welcome, Sonia. Thanks. It's good to be here. It's so good to hear you on KZYX. You've just moved back to California from the East Coast, uh, and you're getting ready to embark on this latest journey, this new job at, at KZYX and the Mendo Voice. How is the move going? When do you get started here at KZYX? So I'll be starting officially on Monday. Um, the move's been going pretty well. Finding a place to live has kind of been the challenge, but it seems like I've narrowed the search a bit, and um, yeah, it seems to be going pretty well. 
Yeah, that's one thing we hear really commonly about, you know, people getting getting jobs and moving here is that it's super hard to find housing. So are you, how's that going? Initially, it was kind of difficult because whenever something's on the market, it seems like it just moves really quickly. So um, trying to get something from North Carolina um, lined up was practically impossible. Um, and I really didn't want to sign a lease before I actually saw the place. So... Um, yeah, now that I'm here, it seems like I have a place to stay for the meanwhile, and uh, that gives me a little bit of time to find just the right place. Yeah, right, which will definitely happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you you just said you were moving from North Carolina. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the journey that, you, that you've taken to, to get here? How did you get here? Oh, you mean in terms of just driving? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Okay, so more so. Yeah, um, yeah like okay. what were you doing in North Carolina? And then also, uh, you reported in, at the Eureka Times Standard, so you have some kind of a good background here of, of our region. Yeah, definitely. So um, I ended up going to North Carolina just because I felt like it was time to focus on more of a specific beat instead of doing everything under the sun at a local paper. Um, as much as I liked some of the harder news we were covering, um, I guess just covering lots and lots of community events is not my thing. There's only so much you can write after the first truckers parade about, <laughs> you know, what actually went on there. So, um, yeah, I found the life sciences be itself interesting, but I just realized business journalism is not really for me. Writing for a business audience and what can make them more money based off of the information I report, that's not really why I became a journalist. So I decided, you know, I needed to move back into a space where I was covering things that were more of a public service sort of journalism. Um, and so that's kind of what led me to apply for the environmental reporting beat, just because I think that's going to be one of the core issues affecting our entire species for the foreseeable future until we figure this thing out. Right. And we're experiencing this all over the globe right now with the drought here, wildfires, um, stronger hurricanes. Um, so, yeah, all of that is just something I think we need to be on top of. And I really felt like if I was going to transition, this would be the right beat to move toward. Right. Well, and there's all the associated politics involved with it's not just about kelp and redwood trees. And Definitely. You know, it's like with the fires, we have all of this associated news with PG&E and, you know, the clearing around the power lines that's going on right now. And just like it just goes off into all of these directions as well. And there's these kind of intersections between the environment and the climate and the human populations in our region. Yeah, I feel like a lot of journalism and journalists in general, you kind of think, oh, if we just get the facts out there, people will think rationally about this and do what the best option is. But I feel like depending on where you're situated, the best option looks very different. So you kind of have to go and talk to all the stakeholders, find out what their perspective is, how you can, you know, kind of. Um, create buy-in for them and highlight the issues that they're facing and put those contradictions right in people's faces to kind of confront and really deal with the complexity of the issue instead of, um, I know we have a habit of just presenting one side and the other over and over again until people are like, 
how do you contextualize this? So I think, um, yeah, that's going to be a big issue when it comes to a lot of these, because what drives people is not always information. Sometimes it's loyalty. Sometimes it's personal interest. Almost never information. No, no. Yeah. I don't want to make our job seem that bleak. Yeah. I mean, I think the information definitely helps and can guide policy. But um, what drives people in these particular instances, I think, can vary quite a bit. And you really have to get to the root of what's driving these individuals and why are they behaving in this way that might not make sense to some groups of people, but will make a whole lot of sense when you kind of explain it in a way that people can relate to. Right. Even if they don't agree, exactly. at least they can understand why people are approaching things in the way they're approaching them. I think that's a really important part of our job. Um, how did you get your start in journalism? I mean, you've you've covered a whole lot of different beats at a whole lot of different kinds of newspapers. Can you talk about that? How you get started? Yeah, I mean, when I was in college, I was kind of like a lot of college students. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but when I stepped into a newsroom, it was just, you know, it felt really natural and kind of covering things like board meetings that most people would find horribly boring to me were terribly exciting. So. That's, oh, that's amazing. Well, um, and what a public service to be able to cover that so that people who find it boring don't have to sit through it. Exactly. So I figured, you know, most people, they're not going to want to sit through a three hour, you know, a student body government meeting or listen to what the board of directors is talking about. But I mean, all of us pay taxes and that's where our money is being spent. And so I think if people could get it in a way that's entertaining and really simplifies it and breaks it down to help them participate. Um, that just makes the decision-making process easier for people to actually participate in. Right, as opposed to just the wall of bureaucracy that keeps people from really knowing how they can make a difference. Well, what was it about stepping into the newsroom, do you think, that, that felt so natural and so at home to you? I think it's just... Student journalism is kind of different uh, from other industry journalism because I think it's a more pure form of it where you can kind of really just do what your heart desires and you have like all the time in the world to kind of attack a story and go after things. But once you get into professional journalism, it's a little different. You can easily um, find yourself just kind of like going through the motions. So. Um, Covering the truckers parade again. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it was just the atmosphere of trying to find information. You're kind of at the center of the entire community, kind of at the forefront of information, finding out people's stories and sharing it with the rest of the community so that people know, hey, what's happening in this person's world? And, you know, maybe they're doing something really new and interesting and innovative and we should all know about it. And you can kind of do that in every little um, sector of the community to the point where, yeah, you're just kind of at the front line of information and everything new that's happening. And to me, that's really exciting. So, okay, what were some of the early newsrooms that you were in? That so India West was probably the first professional news uh, room I was in. I started off as a copy editor, but um, the entertainment editor ended up leaving, so I just kind of got put into that role because I watched a bunch of Bollywood movies growing <laughs> up and <laughs> knew a lot about American like, entertainment. Hired. Yeah. <laughs> 
But I mean, um, I was doing a pretty good job in terms of just tracking down uh, um, Indian American celebrities and following them on Twitter and reporting on all the gossip and new things going on. But Coming from student journalism where you were muckraking, did it, did it, it were kind of like, what am I doing? Exactly. I mean, it was decent pay. And I mean, it, I loved the people I was working with, but it just was not really, again, why I became a journalist. So. Not fulfilling. Yeah. So I ended up moving to Calaveras County. Um, that was the first political reporting job that I had. And that was mostly covering county government and the courts there. Um, the courts, not so much. I did a little bit of coverage in terms of uh, a major homicide that happened there. And, um, you know, a, a few convicts who were going to be released. There were a few things like that. But um, in general, it was mostly covering the aftermath of the Butte fire and efforts to kind of remove the debris um, and get all of these different agencies from the federal, state, and local level working together. And that was kind of a mess, frankly. Mm -hmm. So, Well, that was in, what year was the Butte fire? I believe it was 2015. So right at the end of 2015. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, at that point, I think that was one of the biggest fires in California history. Um, obviously not it's anymore. Been dwarfed now, right, of course. And so I think it was one of those instances where they still hadn't kind of gotten their bearing and weren't expecting things like this to become much more catastrophic. Um, but yeah, just driving around the area, all the hillsides were now moonscapes um, and the fire had burned so hot that they weren't sure things were going to grow there again. So um, just covering the aftermath of that to me was incredibly interesting. And I realized, I think that was kind of the starting point of we need to really be focusing on the environment mm -hmm. with our reporting. Um, so yeah, after that, you know, housing because of the fire definitely became an issue. Mm -hmm. And so I wound up in New Mexico and there I was covering mostly education, but um, for I, I also did a little bit of um, coverage of the local community trying to band together to ban uranium mining on county land. And they received a lot of pushback from both the mining companies and the state. So um, that ended up creating a, a whole lot of issues because um, you would imagine that you have a lot of control at the local level. But sometimes if the state isn't really OK with what you're doing or feels like it's at odds with what they're trying to do, it can really put a damper on any sort of action that you're trying to take. So uh, that interplay between state and local government becomes really important when it comes to environmental issues. Right. And it's the unique role of journalism to shine a light on that stuff. Like there's no other force in our culture that really it's their job to look at that stuff and make sure people knows, know about it. Right. Yeah, you kind of have to reach out to everybody involved and nobody else is making the calls and like doing the groundwork. Um, so if we weren't doing it, people just wouldn't know. Um, and they kind of hit a brick wall unless, you know, an advocacy group did the groundwork. And then, you know, it's tainted might not be the right word, but people won't take it as an unbiased source because right. people have... A particular perspective there that they're trying to push right whereas I guess with journalism our perspective is supposed to be to 
get the information out. Yeah. <laughs> we want you to know this is happening, and that's about about it. Yeah, you can kind of provide a platform for people to express their views, um, but it's not necessarily our own views. We kind of have to, even if we have our own perspective, we kind of have to keep that in check in order to be able to um, do justice to everybody's side of the story. Right, so, right. Obviously, people aren't neutral. Like, and I'm, yeah. I'm pretty transparent in some of the coverage that I do that I'm, I'm not neutral in this, but my point of view is that everybody's voices should be heard. So yeah, I hope that's an ethical way to go about it. Because I don't know, did our journalists ever neutral? I think we're all coming from a particular perspective. And even if we think we're being as neutral as possible or objective as possible. Um, I think people can see what our perspective is in our framing of stories and the questions that we ask. Um, when I try to approach perspectives that I may not personally agree with, it takes a lot of work on my end to just say, okay, I'm going to block all of that out and do my best, but even then it'll still come out. So I think people can, you know, let you know also what their questions are for the opposing side. And if you can kind of do your best at teasing out what everybody's um, perspective is, challenging those ideas so that you get like stronger ideas that maybe can um, merge at some point to create better policy. That's kind of what we're trying to get at. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm your host, Alicia Bales, and my guest is Sonia Warich. She's the new Report for America reporter for KZYX and the Mendocino Voice, and she'll be starting reporting for us next week. We're so thrilled to have you, and it's, it's great to get to talk to you and introduce you to our listeners. Um, you then ended up at the Eureka Times Standard, which is in our region, so yep. I imagine that that gave you a pretty good background and context for reporting on the environment in Mendocino. Can you talk about working in that newsroom and what kinds of issues were really hot when you were there? Yeah, I mean, um, there were, are so many stories that kind of fall through the cracks just because you have limited resources in a lot of newsrooms. But um, I would say that um, the wind farm project um, that people have probably heard of um, down here was pretty contentious um, on top. There were a lot of environmental issues because um, as far as sea level rise goes, it's threatening a lot of public infrastructure. So say a wastewater facility, you don't really want that to be in the way of sea level rise. And so in Eureka and Arcata, that is the case actually. So um, trying to figure out how to move those facilities um, that wasn't really happening because they were really just trying to address, uh, I guess, upgrades that needed to be taking place. And so when it comes to a lot of greenhouse gas emission reduction targets, too, there are mandates from the state in order to make these happen, but there is no funding for rural communities to actually implement them. And they can't really do that through tax revenue because they're already strapped as it is. So... Um, it presented a lot of challenges, but even for industry, um, ocean acidification, it prevents shellfish from actually forming their shells. And there's a, hu a huge shellfishing industry up there. So, um, you know, that's going to have major implications. But 
the company working up there were actually trying to find out how can we manage the marine ecosystem in order to, you know, keep it viable. Um, were they having issues up there with the kelp forests, with the kelp beds? I know that there were... There was there were a lot of changes happening to the marine ecosystem. I didn't delve too much into that, but I definitely am interested in doing that uh, going forward. Yeah, major issue here in yeah. Mendocino County on the coast. Yeah, so, um, I mean, obviously there was a, a lot happening with cannabis as well and just regulation surrounding cannabis um, because that if it overtakes other sorts of... Um, resource production, natural resource production, then um, that's going to have huge impacts for the land also. And so um, just figuring out the regulations at the county level, how to make it easy for people who don't have a lot of resources and use that as their livelihood, but not sacrificing the environmental aspect of uh, the community too, that also was a huge issue. Likewise, down here <laughs> yeah. in Mendocino. I mean, really, we're sister communities, Humboldt and Mendocino. And, and we're going to get in when we talk with Mary Callahan, we're going to talk about that relationship, too, with the county to the south of us. So we, we've got this kind of redwood region, uh, but a lot. We're all facing very, very similar issues. Humboldt and Mendocino are, are locked in this kind of marriage around the Potter Valley Project and the Eel River and the Russian River. Uh, you know, so it's in a lot of ways, these issues are um, impacting all of us, uh, you know, the, the same issues that, that we're all involved in. Yeah, definitely. And even just, um, you know, there was a new report that you actually sent me. Um, related to <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> Have you seen this? <laughs> the uh, missing and murdered indigenous women um, and two spirit people um, and just people broadly within the indigenous community. And so, um, yeah, I reported on that. Um, first report um, at the time standard. So I think that's a big issue that isn't really being delved into um, quite enough um, by media. And really, it's just because they're strapped for resources. So I think a lot of what I was doing there can definitely carry over into Mendocino County and kind of be localized. Even just um, you know, the things that are happening in similar regions across the world, um, the way that they're, for instance, the collapse of the condo there with sea level rise, you're going to have a lot of the salt water um, affecting foundations and seaside towns. And so how is that being handled by um, either developers or people who own these properties or even the county to kind of help address them before they start collapsing here? Also, I think there's really a whole wealth of um, information that we can explore um, related to this topic. Right, yeah, climate issues uh, really intersect with every aspect of our lives. And so that when, you, when you're on the climate environment beat, which is what you're going to be working on, it's almost like, well, you know, what's the climate angle? Because you know that it's going to be there. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, just even talking to people on the ground who are experiencing these things, I'm sure there are people, um, wine growers here who are dealing with weather extremes and, you know, how are they managing that um, and trying to keep it from affecting their crop. Um, I think that's also going to be huge for a large group of people. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of different ways to cover it. And I think there's a lot 
there's a lot yeah. of potential there. <laughs> I'm so curious, too, because just the county next door, Humboldt, they have been struggling with their cannabis ordinance and cannabis development in the county to the north. Um, and I really feel like the contrast, the, the compare and contrast, the familiarity with what's going up there, up on up there uh, and how it compares to what's happening down here can give us a lot of insight. Like, why did that community decide to approach it? this way and what have been the effects of that there's been a lot of discussion in our local government um quite positive about humboldt's program but you'll uh, you know as as sort of a, a model that we might want to look to but then there are civil rights activists and environmental activists on the ground who are saying wait a minute there are a lot of issues with the way that they're doing it and if we're not privy to that public discourse down here we we're at a disadvantage from you know making the same mistakes or you know not being able to avoid the pitfalls that they find themselves in so i think that's i'm that to me that's like a real advantage of you coming here after your time at, at the eureka time standard so yeah i mean it's actually a little funny because uh the people up there were uh praising the ordinance down here that was initially oh. created <laughs> and said that should be the model they should be following so but which ordinance exactly it's they've all gone through so many renditions that um it, it also depends on if you're a grower or part of the county government what you actually think is best and even i don't know if you um saw that they had been doing a lot of raids on um illegal grows up there that had a lot of issues sometimes it was not actually an illegal grow somebody was just growing tomatoes in their greenhouse yes including a group of nuns out in whitethorn who got an abatement notice for their vegetable greenhouse so yeah we, <laughs> people will say a lot of things and uh it's important for us to to verify what's really going on so okay so in the last couple minutes here um what about what kind of the the topic of this show or so the, the reason for the show is because local journalism is under such strain, right? It's been um, underfunded. It's been hollowed out. We're sort of, you know, we have these news deserts in rural areas, uh, meaning there just isn't a functional news for local issues in lots of the country at this point. So um, you've come to a rural newsroom. You're going to be working with two newsrooms, KZYX and Mendo Voice, Mendocino Voice. Um, how do you approach that? What, what, do, what do you see for your uh, profession? And, you know, how do you how do you um, relate with the kind of the state of local journalism? Yeah, I mean, uh, especially reading into the history of how newspapers used to run and Seymour Hersh's um, memoir, it's kind of a sad state of affairs where generally um, at other news papers i've had to produce two articles a day and with that you can't really delve into any particular issue very deeply um and by the end of it your brain is so exhausted you're just like i don't want to do any more thinking or talking to anybody for the rest of the oh, day just hammering out two articles a day yeah and so i feel like um delving into things a little more deeply so people can get a much more nuanced um, and well-rounded take on what's actually going on is actually um you know going to be great for me and i think the community um especially when it comes to this issue on top of that, Report for America has all sorts of resources um, that are great in terms of trainings and mentors. Um, so I think just bringing all of that, the investigative aspects of um, how to look into these issues, uh, on top of the skills that I've already learned, I think, um, you know, will 
will really be a stark contrast from the way I've had to do journalism in the past. So uh, with the support of Report for America, this will be an opportunity to uh, actually get to do more of the journalism that you really want to do. Yeah, definitely. That's great. Well, Sonia Orich, we are looking forward to hearing a lot more from you. And in fact, you're going to stay on the show with me right now as we turn to our second segment, which is um, we're going to be talking with Mary Callahan, the climate change and environment reporter for the Santa Rosa Press Democrats. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with Mary Callahan. I just got good news. This is Byline Mendocino. I am your host, Alicia Bales, in the studio with Sonia Warich of the KZYX Newsroom and the Mendocino Voice, our new Report for America reporter. And on the Zoom with us is Santa Rosa Press Democrat, Environment and Climate Change reporter, Mary Callahan. Hey, Mary, welcome. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you sound great. Thank you for Zooming Good. in this morning. And I'm just so tickled to get to talk with you. I read your stories every day. <laughs> Well, thank you. Fangirl. Um, <laughs> so um, you are the climate change and environment reporter for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. You cover the coastal region and the drought, but you got your start as a reporter working in the Ukiah office when the Press Democrat had a Mendocino bureau. So you've been up and around here for many, many years, and you're frequently the byline when the PD runs stories about Mendocino County. So thanks for being here. And today, I mean, today's the perfect example your front page story on the uh, in the press democrat this morning is about mendocino town the village of mendocino wells running dry yeah exactly um and and uh i do i have such an affinity for mendocino county because of my my uh sort of journalism roots there and just find it an ever fascinating place to write about um yeah that story has been something i've been meaning to look into for quite a long time because i knew that there were, were particular issues there on the coast as uh, uh, separate from sort of the Russian River watershed um, problems that we've been examining more thoroughly um, through the last several months. And um, pretty sad state of affairs. I know that there are a number of other communities around Mendocino County that have specific problems like Redwood Valley and, um, you know, other isolated places that are that are uh, less well served by the Russian River. Um, so eager to look into all of those particulars. Right. And of course, we were just talking about the relationship between the Eel River and the Russian River, but then between Mendocino County and Lake Mendocino and all of Sonoma, um, you've been reporting on uh, the Russian River and the dire state of affairs and the, that impact that it has on um, grape growers and just residents. They're they're facing in the next week or two major curtailments of their ability to use the Russian River water, right? Yeah, and actually, I was just, I check as I do every morning, I just check the, the Lake Mendocino uh, level. Um, it's got about 727 acre feet left before it hits the curtailment trigger level, which at the rate uh, water is being withdrawn should be, gosh, like four days, maybe. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, or less. So, yeah, I think we're anticipating the state water board to take action next week. Um, to curtail divert, uh, diversions from the Russian River there. And, you know, I, I have a huge amount. I, the, the, uh, the reporting assignment that I have right now, the um, climate change and environment reporter, I have had for a couple of months. I have a great deal to learn. And um, one of the interesting things about um, the Russian River and the curtailments and that whole issue is that there is a lot of 
uh, a lot that is unknown about who is taking water from the river and when. And so it's unclear where those diversions are going right now and who's withdrawing water um, and how they're going to enforce the curtailments when they do um, impose them. The curtailments basically is a way, is a, is a weird word. It basically means you may have water rights, you may have uh, legal rights to withdraw water from the river, but once we curtail them, we are, uh, we are saying that we have, a, you know, as a state water board, we have authority to, to suspend your water rights and prohibit you from withdrawing water further because there simply isn't any water natural flow in the river um, that exists currently for you to take any out. What's in the river right now is water that's being released from the reservoir, water that is uh, being released for the sole purpose of fulfilling the um, Army Corps and the Sonoma Water Agency's legal responsibility to provide sufficient flow in the river for salmonid species. So the least amount of water that can keep fish alive, right? Right, and theoretically they are supposed to uh, maintain a certain minimum stream flow, but in order to do that, because there's enough water being withdrawn from the river, they're having to release um, significantly more than that minimum stream flow because so much is being pulled out. You reported um, that they're able to tell kind of exactly what segments in the river are being diverted the most. Um, but it sounds like what you're saying is they don't really know how to necessarily quantify or enforce restrictions. Um, I think if they had sufficient, you know, funding and personnel, they could, they could, you know, paddle down the river and figure out where the pipes were in and what motors were running to pump water out. I mean, I think it's not impossible to do so. I just think that they don't have the, the you know, the wherewithal to do it. Um, but you can see from the stream gauges, um, you know, what the, the river flow will be is measured in cubic feet per second. And you can see that it will be 52 cubic feet per second in Cloverdale. And by the time you get to Jimtown, it's 32 cubic feet per second or something like that. And so you know that, um, you know, there's a certain amount of that that's being uh, that's evaporated and a certain amount of that that's being absorbed by riparian um, uh, plant life along the way um, or, you know, um, somehow being naturally distributed along the river. But um, obviously there's a significant amount that's being withdrawn. So I get the sense, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk with you is because it just seems like there's so much news happening from Mendocino County. And I wonder if that's an accurate assessment. Like, are you finding that there's a lot more, that you're doing a lot more coverage up here because of the issues of the drought and the fires and all of the stuff going on with PG&E? Or is it just, is there always news from Mendocino County? And it's just, you know, I have that impression. Um. Gosh, that's a good question, actually. I mean, when I first joined the newspaper in 1992 or three, um, aging myself there, um, I was the first, I was an addition to the bureau that had always been a one person bureau. And it was the first time we had a two person bureau. And we were um, never short of stories. We were constantly shifting gears. Um, we used to speak of it in terms, I was there with Mike Janella, who a lot of people in the county know. Yeah. Um, we used to speak of it in terms of, you know, standing in a river and you would grab the biggest fish and then until the bigger fish came along. I mean, you were just constantly juggling and, you know, producing multiple stories. And, and um, it was so exciting because there were so many interesting things going on and it was very much um, 
you know, it wasn't the beginning of transition, but there was, um, you know, it's such an interesting place because there were a lot of resource. It had always been a resource-based county that was in transition, and um, so there were there were a lot of um, a lot of things that were happening in terms of shifting gears for the for the the people in the county, and and there were interesting sociological things that were going on, and economic things that were going on. And I think you might be, are a, you talking about the timber wars of the nineties? Well, that and other things, but yes, the Timber Wars, um, and and also just it's just a fascinating, beautiful place, and you know a lot of environmental things to report on. And then I did a lot of public safety, which, um, you know, for whatever reason, a lot of um, unusual stories came out of Mendocino County in that regard. Not the least of which, which was Richard Allen Davis and his little sojourn there, and that was sort of my transition down to the newsroom when I covered his trial. And got it. Um, yeah. That was the um, poly class case, right? That's correct. Yeah. Right. Wow. Um, what? A, yeah. What a decade the '90s was. Yeah. I actually um, didn't know about that. What? What is that case? Good question. Can you get? Can you for somebody who <laughs> <laughs> somebody who's a lot younger than I? Yeah. Um, both of us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, poly class was uh, a young girl who lived in Petaluma who was. Um, who was kidnapped from her home when she had two girlfriends sleeping over in the middle of the night and they were tied up and she was um, kidnapped and killed by a man who had uh, a long history of assaulting women and he had been out of prison for a little bit. Um, And it it was a case that horrified Sonoma County and the country. It was a national, big, one of those big national, you know, tabloid kind of cases and she was missing for two months everyone was looking for her there was a massive search and it turned out that um, Sonoma County Sheriff's deputies two deputies had been called about an odd man in a on a rural road here in Sonoma County who has whose car had been stuck someone had seen him he seemed out of place um, they sent him they got him unstuck and or you know sent him on his way and it turned out that man was Richard Allen Davis, who was later found, um, who was later arrested on a DUI, I think, and jailed in Ukiah, and then um, released back home. Anyway, long story short, it turned out that he had taken her to that place in Sonoma County, and she, he later re- led law, law enforcement to her body. That was um, in, and it was in just, Cloverdale, right? Um, right on the margins of Cloverdale. Yeah. And so it was just a... It was just a horrible case that had engaged so many people who were desperate to find her alive. And then it turned out she had been dead the whole time and that he, this man had been under the noses of law enforcement. And there was always the question of whether she was still alive in the car at the time that they found. I mean, it was just a horrible case. Anyway, that's that's that, in, a, that. in a nutshell, the poly class yeah. case. And there was a whole um, yeah. the whole a whole episode where he was um, holed up on the Coyote Valley Reservation in Redwood Valley. Yeah, and the, exactly. The the tribe was trying to remove him. But the, it, it was a very interesting situation. But so, yeah, so it had a little Ukiah chapter to it. And I just want to add one other point that the, the, the some of the significance of the case was that that was a primary impetus for the three strikes you're out movement. Was because he had been, he had been imprisoned time and time again, and paroled. Uh huh. And released. Yeah. So yeah. 
That yeah. sounds pretty horrifying. Yeah, memories bring brings yep. a lot back. But uh, th- but other there were other things that uh, still cast a shadow on on today as well. I mean, namely as you were talking about the transitional uh, economy, the environmental reporting, all of that stuff seems very. I mean, we're still sort of in that paradigm here in Mendocino. We could. We could easily still staff an, an office up there and produce tons of stories. And I'm often drawn to many of the Mendocino County stories because I think of my connection there, but also just because they're fascinating stories. And, you know, like you were guys that guys were discussing a few minutes ago, um, newsrooms have shrunk. You know, ours, ours has, has we're, we're actually doing far better because of our unique, uh, our unique ownership situation. Um, we're doing and uh, we're doing quite a bit better than a lot of newsrooms around the country. Um, and I'm really proud of that. And I'm really proud of our newspaper. Um, but, you know, we are still uh, operating at a much lower um, staffing level than we did historically. Um, and um, certainly at the time that I joined the newspaper, at that time, we were owned by the New York Times. And we were in a, uh, we were sort of, at that time, we were probably a, a, about the largest we were going to be, um, or maybe a little bit after that. Um, but you know, as we've seen, things have changed and, uh, and so we don't have a bureau anymore. We used to have a Petaluma bureau as well. Um, and so we're, we're doing what we can, um, and, um, and trying to reach out when we can to, to, um, bring in those Mendocino stories, Mendocino County stories. I hope to be able to do more of that because of, you know, obviously the issues and the problems and the trends don't recognize county borders and um you know we're all kind of part of the same world and well yeah bring us up to date i mean when did the mendocino county bureau of the santa rosa press democrat when did that close and why and and like could you talk about the kind of the stages and the changes that the pd has gone through over the last couple of years that have resulted in the current ownership model because it seems like you are doing quite well in a sea of not so good examples of you know local journalism local or regional well um so uh you know what i'm going to be terrible about knowing exactly what years things happened but um we were owned by the new york times for quite a long time we were part of their their regional newspaper group and um, oh, I'm awful with time. I don't know what year this happened. Um, at, at some point, um, an organization in um, Florida um, was interested in, I think, their Gainesville property um, and wanted to buy their one or two of their Florida newspapers. And my understanding of it is that the New York Times, and it was sort of just a, an offer that came out of the blue, and my understanding is the New York Times at the time, because of its own cost-cutting interests, um, said, hey, if you want that newspaper, you're going to have to buy the whole regional newspaper group. And they agreed to do so, um, and that included a bunch of southeastern newspapers and, and I think a couple of broadcast entities, as well as two West Coast newspapers, Santa Barbara and us, the New York, uh, the Press Democrat, which was, you know, here in Progressive Sonoma County, a union shop. Um, you know, they didn't really know much about it. They came out. They talked to us about. Um, they they had a sort of, you know, meet the owners meeting, and it was clear that they just didn't have a handle at all on life out here, or or really much of anything. And 
Um, they owned us for 11 months, um, and um, it, what what was not known to a lot of us was that they were already dismantling the organization and, and planning a significant um, getting of the, the newsroom operation, but also we're, we're preparing and getting ready to sell off uh, real estate and, and physical properties and so forth. And so there were some really smart and uh, um um, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but people who were um, working behind the scenes for whom I will always be grateful, who decided that that was not going to happen. And they, um, one of them was our union chief who um, started contacting local investors that they thought would have an interest in maintaining a locally run newspaper that was for Sonoma County and put together a group of people led by Darius Anderson who um who would purchase the newspaper and that's what they did and so we're leasing the building we're leasing two we were leasing two stories of our our uh headquarters downtown um and we're going to be moving out of there soon um and they have um basically restored sort of integrity to the operation and um you know we have still been hit really hard by covid we've ha still had all kinds of you know some of the same problems um but you know, we're hanging in there. We're doing a lot better than a lot of other newspapers. We have a, a new executive editor who came on board in February who's just wonderful, uh, Rick Green. And um, he's he's making a lot of really great changes in the in the, the news operation. And I think people are really happy to have him on board. You know, we're just very lucky. I feel very fortunate. Yeah. So the Press Democrat is under local control at this point. It was a New York Times paper for a long time. How is you know, what's the difference now you've been there through all three regimes? Uh, what is the difference? Um, well, I, you know, I will say, actually, that um, that in neither in neither instance was there you know, it's always been a newsroom that's operated out of the newsroom. And, you know, Darius Anderson is a, you know, a political guy. A lot of people, are, a lot of people have this supposition that he, um, you know, that we're writing stories at his behest and so forth. And that's just not the case. He's not, you know, imposing views on the newsroom. And the same was true of the New York Times. I mean, there were, you know, they were pretty hands off. I mean, there were times where they would send consultants into the newsroom or folks that would come in and talk about, I don't know coaching or something like that. But for the most part, it's always been an independent operation. Um, you know, the main the main difference with the New York Times was they had money. I mean, you know, so we there was it was just a there was just more free flowing cash. And I'm not and then I'm not trying to suggest that everybody was paid super well or that we had it just was a different kind of we just functioned differently. Mm -hmm. uh, it was definitely more corporate. Um, but there was more money for things like I don't even know. Um, that probably affected the, you know, the higher level personnel than the, the peons like me in the newsroom. So, um, but well, it, just, it, it, just, it seems it just that felt like it was a little easier when I when I talk with Mike Janella or Kent Porter, who have lifetime careers for, at the Press Democrat, um, they like Mike retired and had a career and did great, you know, and I can't it's hard for me to imagine being a young journalist now um, and having, you know, the, those kinds of career prospects in a regional newsroom, you know what I mean? Yeah, a lot of that had to do with the fact that um, there were stock options with the New York Times, and the people who were um, on board during a certain time frame, when those stock options had great value, um, you know, purchased homes, um, got to acquire equity, 
Um, and then also we had a very strong pension fund uh, as a union. And so people who were, it, it, who were in and out in a certain time frame did quite well. The pension fund is still um, alive and kicking, but not as, not as uh, healthy and mm-hmm. valuable as it was, once was. So definitely there were people like, you know, uh, Mike and his people of his era who, who uh, I don't mean to talk about Mike. Sorry, Mike. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> um, but, you know, yeah. But it was possible to have a career where you could raise a family and, and, and do quite well. Um, probably similar in other industries as well. I mean, you talk about uh, logging or manufacturing and, you know, it's just it's a sign of the times, I guess. But um, let's... And also those people acquired their homes at a time that the val- when the value was more in line with the, you know, reality. Yeah. Right, where you could afford to buy a house if you were just a working person. Um, oh, the mythical good old days of the U.S. economy. Um, so let's turn back to your reporting. Um, uh, let me also just mention, this is Byline Mendocino here on KZYX. I'm Alicia Bales. And on the air with us is Mary Callahan, who is the climate and envi- climate change and environment reporter at the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, but who has been working at, and reporting at the, at the Press Democrat since the early 90s. So uh, the long view here, which is my favorite thing about talking to reporters, is th- that that long view of having covered uh, stories on the ground. Um, how do you decide uh, what is newsworthy and what makes a Mendocino County story relevant to press Democrat readers? Like, when, how do we rank? <laughs> oh my goodness, that is a that is a that question changes. Every, the answer to that question changes every day. Um, you know, part of it is, um, is what's doable. Um, I mean, you know, I could find a story in Mendocino County to write about every day, but part of the, part of the, part of the whole equation, there's like this mystical, mystical, you know, problem solving about what does the newspaper need? How many stories does the newspaper need in a given day to fill the paper? Part of it has to do with what else am I juggling? What else am I, you know, how much energy do I have for that? What do I have to do that is, that is, um, you know, certain stories can be written today or next week or in a month. Certain stories have to happen today um, or by the end of the week. Um, and so there's there's sort of that consideration. Um, and um, and then there are stories that some things that you want to kind of wait to see them come a little bit, become a little bit better formed. Um and so, and then there's the, like, I'll give you an example. Um, so that you know that there's been a lot of activity around the Jackson demonstration for us. Yes, we've been covering and, that one a lot. Yeah. And so that's a story that we have not gotten to. And part of it is because the drought has been sort of all consuming. And then there was another reporter in the newsroom who sort of looked at that. And I, I, I wasn't sure to what degree she was, you know, we just didn't communicate sufficiently well on that. Um, but the, but that that struck me as a story that would require me to really spend some time to get some background on that, which I don't have. I'm familiar with the Jackson demonstration forest, and you know, so that that was a miss, and um, that's still something to get on top of. And I, um, but I, I knew that I needed to spend some time with that that I didn't feel I had, and that wasn't something I could knock out in a half a day or a day because mm-hmm. right. I just don't have the background on it. So that's. That's an example of one that I'm still hoping to get to, but I haven't gotten to yet. 
Um, so, and, and for a story not, like not that, not a good excuse. But would would you know. get would delving into that story mean coming up here, or do you do most of your legwork from down there? Well, that's another issue. Is that obviously? Um, I mean, you can do a lot by phone, but I, I do most of my work by phone simply because the luxury of travel and getting the time to to go see stuff is especially up there. That's you know that's a whole day just. Um, and that, you know, we used to do more of that where you would actually spend the time to go to go out into the field. But it's become more difficult to do that just because of the time involved and because of fewer reporters. Right. That's and the, the pandemic, that's one of the big losses. Yeah. Right. 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 Well, you did come up here during the August complex, I thought. I thought I saw some on the ground. Reporting. No, the Julie Johnson was up there ah, uh, a day or two. Uh-huh. I did not get up there, um, which was sad to me because I do. I, you know, I definitely do feel a certain amount of ownership. Um, but um yeah. Why do you think um, Santa Rosa regional readers need the news from up here? It's part of our region. It's it's part of our world. And um, they're just increasingly integrated. I mean, look at the look at the, the issue with the watershed. I mean, we we need to understand what's going on up there. And we need to see that, you know, the 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 um, the story that I wrote last week about you know, the reach losses between Cloverdale and Jimtown and the fact that um, those 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 were based on data from the first week of July. The second week data indicates that there are withdrawals that are happening in other reaches of the river as well. But, you know, when I look at that and I think the upper river has been working really, really hard to conserve. And, you know, here Sonoma County is failing to meet the meet the mark. And, you know, I don't know what I feel about that, but but I felt bad for I feel bad for Mendocino County user, you know, water users and that they're they're working so hard and we didn't do it. Um, but, you know, there there's just there's just we're all facing the same issues and there's there has to be more and more sharing of uh, solutions and approaches. And um, I just think yeah. we need to know what's happening in the in the two areas. And it's it's interesting. I mean, if you're if you're if you have a mind at all, you're interested in what's going on with your neighbor. I like that. I like that as an approach. If you have a mind, you're interested. I hope that's the truth. I mean, I'm ravenously interested, so it's hard for me to, to be, you know, objective about that. I, yeah. Um, but and, and covering climate change too, it seems like you just got to the point where you're like, I just don't know what to think about that. Like, yeah, at some point, as a climate change reporter, uh, at some point we're going to get to to the end of something, right? Like the water's just going to run out, or you know, we're we're facing changes that seem like they keep being in the future but at some point we're going to get to them and we're going to have to act and i wonder about uh, you know be covering that that beat you know it seems like we were talking about how it touches everything so you know it's a relatively new beat for you yeah and i i think one of the it's been difficult to have you know to get that assignment we've never had a dedicated climate change reporter and there's you know, it's an enormous learning curve, but there's also just a tremendous amount of coverage that we haven't provided for the newspaper yet. But then the drought, I mean, is just so all-consuming that it's really, really challenging to sort of branch out into that sort of more general climate change coverage. But obviously, that's in our faces every single day. It's been more in our faces given these fires um, and the drought combined are obviously evidence of that. Um, and one of the things that I'm, I'm really hoping to do with it is to sort of break things down to a, a very understandable level, but also, um, there are, there are, you know, this whole area is just filled with brilliant, well-educated people 
who are making headway in such a, variety, a huge variety of ways, trying to um, provide opportunities for people to alter their way of functioning in the world in a way that is better for the planet. And um, we need to give people ways to plug into that and, and to both understand how their actions can make a difference, but also to give them an, a, a feeling that they are making a difference. You know, and instead we still have, um, I don't know, I just have this, anyway, I just, I just feel like we need to, we need to play some part and whatever part we can in trying to change behavior. All right. Well, that's that brings us to the last few seconds here of the hour. I want to thank oh, you, sorry. Mary Callahan, for for coming on Byline Mendocino. Really appreciate it, and um, definitely following your reporting on this. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. This has Thanks. been Bye. Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales in the studio with Sonia Warich. Thank you so much, Sonia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willitson Dukayan 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.